But two weeks ago, two weeks ago today on April 15th was Jackie Robinson Day. And a lot of you probably know who Jackie Robinson is, but if you don't, he was a man that in 1947 helped integrate baseball. He was the first black man to play in Major League Baseball. Um, it was in 1947. He played with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Go Dodgers. Just one more reason. Uh, uh, but, but one of the interesting things is when you think back, all right, 1947 is when that happened. That was still years before a lot of the really significant strides that our nation took to look to get rid of segregation. Baseball was integrated in 1947, but it wasn't until a year later, 1948, that the military was even integrated. It wasn't until 1954 that our schools were desegregated and joined together. And even when you think about the 1960s, with mo which most of us associate the 1960s with the civil rights movement, still well into the 60s, there was a lot of racial problems and a lot of systemic racial issues in our country in the 60s. It wasn't until 1964 that we had the Civil Rights Act and 1965 that we had the Road Voting Rights Act. Now just think about that. That is 18 years after baseball was integrated. Which just brings the question to say, now, now wait a second, if it took the rest of our country that long, not, not to solve racism, but just even to get rid of systemic barriers that dramatic, why was it that all the way back in 1947, they were able to accomplish it in baseball? And it's a question worth asking right now also, because right now as a culture, we're, we're asking not only questions about racial divisions, but just about divisions in general in our culture to say, well, how do we get unity? How do we get unity between the races in our culture? And how, how do we get unity between even men and women? And how, how do we get unity between people of different socioeconomic groups? And how do we get unity between our, our different political divisions? How do we experience unity? Well, if, if we look at how baseball was integrated, we, we get a pretty clear answer of why Unity was able to happen there. And that's that unity is possible when the thing that we share is more important to us than the thing that we don't share. Now, for Jackie Robinson, it was not a smooth ride with the Brooklyn Dodgers and with Major League Baseball. But the reason it was successful is because as time went on, the players on the team decided that what they shared was more important than what they didn't share. And you know what they shared? a desire to win. There were some players on the Brooklyn Dodgers that, that had no problem with integration and were happy with it. There were many that weren't. There, there were many that would have had the preference that they had an all-white team. But you know what they wanted more than an all-white team? They wanted to win. So what they shared was more important to them than what they didn't share. All unity is based on this. When we talk about unity as a nation, sometimes what we're talking about is, is just sort of like, well, well, people should just not talk to each other too much because if we, if we talk to each other too much, we'll realize that we can't really be unified. So let's just have this sort of flimsy unity where we're not really saying what we think and we're keeping people apart from each other. You know what this is normally called? Tolerance. Tolerance is not a bad thing, by the way, but tolerance is not unity. Tolerance is when we leave each other alone. Unity is when we really function as one, when we're in it together. And if we're going to experience unity of any kind, that unity is going to be based on the fact that what we share is more important to, to us than what divides us. 
Now, for some of you, you might be thinking, that's, that's an interesting introduction, but I thought we were in this series about the gospel. Like, why are we talking about this stuff? I mean, we're talking about the gospel for four weeks. This whole question, what is the gospel? Which at a basic level, we've answered by saying, the gospel is the message not about what you are supposed to do for God, but it is the message about what God has done. It is about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's about the fact that we can have our sins forgiven and look forward to eternal life and be adopted into the family of God, not because we can look and say, look at the great stuff I've accomplished, but because we can say, look at the great thing that Jesus accomplished, I'm with him. I stand with him. I trust him. I place my faith in him. I I confess my sins. I am with him, and if I'm with him, I am rescued. That is the gospel. You might be thinking, well, isn't, isn't the gospel all about my personal relationship with God? What, what in the world does it have to do with racial unity and, and, and unity between a, a different groups of people? What, why does this tie in? Well, that's going to tie in strongly to what we're going to talk about this final week of the series. And specifically, what we're going to talk about is the fact that the gospel of Jesus not only reconciles us to God, but also reconciles us to one another. I don't know if anybody's up there, but you guys are, I think, going to have to handle the slides. Nothing's happening on my end. Um, The gospel not only reconciles us to God, but reconciles us to one another. The gospel provides the basis for the kind of unity, the basis for something shared that overcomes all of the things that divide us. Now, last week, Pastor Jeff brought us through the first part of Ephesians chapter 2. He brought us through verses 1 through 10. I'm actually going to pick up right where we left off last week. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, and we're going to walk through a passage where the Apostle Paul walks through how the gospel of Jesus is not only the basis of how we look forward to eternal life, but it's the basis for unity between different groups of people. Now, we'll talk about this in three ways throughout the passage. The first thing that we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the fact that the gospel is the basis of unity because of its reach. The reach of the gospel is the basis for our unity. Now, if you have an open Bible, um, you can look on. If, if not, I'll have the verses up here, and you also have verses in your uh, bulletin insert. But Paul starts off and says, Therefore... Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Now, we're going to pause here, even though we haven't even completed a sentence yet. Paul's like, I want you to remember. And then he's like, before I tell you to remember, I'm going to tell you a bunch of stuff. So Paul is addressing the Gentiles. Now, the early church and and the church uh, of the Ephesians that he's writing to, it's made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And Gentiles is just a basic term for all non-Jews. And it might seem weird to say that's a weird division, like the world is Jews and then non-Jews. But the reason this is the case is because in the early church, really, the sprouting of the early church was through the Jewish people because they had all of the promises, as Paul is going to talk about here. So a lot of Jews responded to Jesus, and they understood what he had done, and they were able to grasp the prophecies that he had fulfilled. And then the message started going out to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And it created kind of this weird situation in the early church where people who weren't used to interacting with each other were now functioning together. The Jews and Gentiles typically weren't very fond of each other. The Gentiles looked at the Jews as kind of this weird, quirky group that was isolationist and off to themselves and had these strange practices. 
And the Gentile, uh, sorry, and the Jews didn't usually look kindly on the Gentiles. In fact, they had a term for the Gentiles. They called them dogs. And by the way, we're not talking about a nice domesticated dog. This was not a positive term. So there, there was hostility. There was enmity between these two groups. And Paul wants to start off and he says, all right, I'm going to specifically address you Gentiles. By the way, that works well for most of us today because most of us in here are Gentiles. So he's saying, all right, here's what I want to tell you. And, and he gives a little clue to say, you were called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision. Circumcision was sort of the sign that you were part of the Jewish people. So he says, you were outside of this. And then in verse 12, he gets more specific about the ways they were outside of it. He says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, which means he's not simply saying you weren't Christians. Of course they weren't Christians. Nobody was a Christian before Jesus showed up. But Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. He's saying you didn't even know anyone was coming. The Jews may have largely missed that Jesus was the Messiah. You guys didn't even know a Messiah was coming. You didn't even know a savior was prophesied. You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel. You weren't part of God's chosen special people that he put his affection upon. He says, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, the idea that God had made all these promises specifically to the people of Israel, starting all the way back with Abraham. I'm going to bless all people through you, and I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you the promise of a Messiah. So he says, you guys were outside of all of this. You weren't part of God's chosen people. You weren't in on the promises. You didn't even know that a Messiah was coming. And then he concludes verse 12 by saying, without hope and without God in the world. This is the before picture right here, by the way. If you were here last week, Jeff walked through it as he walked through the beginning verses of chapter two. Um, Paul paints another picture, an another before picture. When he says, you were dead in your sins. You were enemies of God. You were hostile towards him. You were deserving wrath. That's the before picture. And Paul's talking specifically to Gentiles, but, but in another sense, we, we could say in, in some sense he's talking to all of us, or at least those of us who, who aren't Jews, to say, all right, we, we were outside of all of this. We were the ones who were far away. We had no expectation of the life of Jesus having anything to do with our lives. And it's striking to me that he finishes that by saying, without hope and without God in the world. He basically says, you know what? If you are not a believer, you are without hope hope. And some of you might say, maybe even some of you in here might think, well, I'm not, I'm not a believer. I'm not a Christian. And I still have hope. This is silly. I know other people who aren't Christians and they still have hope. But what, what Paul's saying here is just not true. You can have hope without being a Christian. And here's the point. You can be under the impression that you have hope and still have no hope. Um, there, there's just because I've already brought up baseball, might as well bring it up again. But just this happens in any sport. You know, in baseball, because it's a long season, so 30 teams, only 10 make the playoffs, that usually means when you get to the last couple of weeks of the year, a whole bunch of the teams already know they're out. They can't make the playoffs. Let's say there's 15 games left. Any team that's 16 games out of the playoffs, they know even if they win all of their remaining games, they can't make the playoffs. They are done. But let's say you went to a player on one of those teams that was eliminated from the playoffs at that point and said, hey, you guys can't do anything. You're hopeless. And that player said, I don't care what anybody else says. I still have hope. We're going to make the playoffs. He said, it doesn't really matter that you think you have hope. You don't have hope. It's not me. It's not my opinion that you have no hope. Math tells us that you have no hope. You can't make it. 
Paul is not saying there's a bunch of people out there that feel hopeless. There are people who feel hopeless. What he's saying is whether or not you feel like it, apart from Christ, you don't have hope. The math doesn't add up. You can't do enough to offset your sins. You can't reach God on your own. You're without hope and without God in the world. But the story's not finished. If this is the before picture, in verse 13, he starts to tell us the after picture because he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the the way that our sins are forgiven, by him paying for them, by the blood of Christ, you who are far off have been brought near. This is the reach of the gospel. This is Paul saying it wasn't just Jews that Jesus died for. It wasn't just moral people that Jesus died for. It was for those who are far off. It doesn't matter how far you are from God, you are not outside of the reach of the gospel. And this is what makes what what we're going to talk about in the later verses, this is what makes all of this possible. For us to talk about the idea of, of the gospel bringing racial harmony and unity or unity between the genders or unity between different classes of people, for that even to be possible, the gospel must welcome all people. Like, have you ever applied for a job and looked at the minimum qualifications and then said, apparently I need not apply. (laughs) There's no one that need not apply for the gospel. There's no race, there's no age, there's no amount of sinning that you've done that makes you eliminated from the reach of the gospel. And that's very important because there may be some of you here right now that are thinking, "I, I think that this whole thing is good for people that have kept their lives clean, but you don't know what I've done. God could never forgive me. And if that's what you think, here's what I want to say. You're probably not wrong about the badness of what you've done. Like all of us underestimate the badness of what we've done. So I'm not arguing with you and saying you haven't done bad stuff. You're probably right about the badness of what you've done. But you are wrong about the power of Jesus Christ. You are wrong when you limit the reach of the gospel. It's not that what you've done isn't that bad. It's that what Jesus did overcomes all of that. And there might even be some of you here this morning that you're not even necessarily going to get on to the rest of the stuff that we're going to talk about here. You're just going to be paused here and say, you know what, I, I need to respond. The gospel reaches out even to me. The reach of the gospel includes even someone like me. And the response that we're called to make is a response of faith that we place our faith in Jesus. Not only that we believe the facts that that Jesus was raised from the dead, but that we say, all right, I'm not gonna stand on my own two feet anymore. I'm not gonna stand before God based on the fact that I've done pretty good things and, and that's why I should get into heaven and why I should be forgiven. I'm gonna stand on the performance of Jesus. I'm gonna stand on his shoulders. I'm gonna trust him. I'm gonna put my faith in him. I'm gonna yield and humble myself before him. And if that is you this morning, not not only am I going to invite you to respond in faith, but there are these connection cards, these green connection cards in the seats in front of you. I'm going to ask you at some point before the service is over, just fill that out real quick and mark on there that you've made a decision to follow Jesus. Because if you've done that, we want to partner with you at this church. 
But this is just Paul's starting point. He says, all right, if we're even going to talk about the gospel reconciling us to one another, we have to start with the idea that nobody is outside the reach of the gospel. It reaches to everyone. And then in verses 14 through 16, and this is the most significant section, he's going to tell us that unity is based not only on the reach of the gospel, but it's based on the power of the gospel. So here's how he starts in verse 14. He says, for he himself is our peace. Amen? Amen. All right. Some of you are like, yeah, that's right. I know that there's that verse with the the angels at the Christmas time thing about peace on earth through Jesus. And there's that verse in Romans where where Paul talks about the whole idea that, that, uh, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Peace. Jesus himself is our peace. He's our peace with God. That's true. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about our peace with God. Listen to him. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Paul is not saying, Jesus brought peace between you and God. That's true, but that's not what he's saying right here. He's saying, Jesus brought peace between the two groups. And we we briefly talked about this in verses 11 and 12. Who are the two groups? Yeah, they're the Jews and the Gentiles, these two groups that have been at odds, these two groups that don't get along. Paul talks about a metaphorical barrier, a metaphorical dividing wall, but that metaphorical dividing wall that kept them at odds with each other was based on an actual literal dividing wall in the temple court of the Jewish people, where Gentiles were able to come into a certain section of the court, but only so far, and then in the main parts of the temple and the courtyard, only the Jews could be. Paul says there has been a literal dividing wall and that stands for a metaphorical dividing wall that has kept you two apart, has kept you two at odds. He says, Jesus brought peace between these two groups. He did away with the hostility. Now, now here's the question. How did he do that? Verse 15, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Now, now I'm just going to, I kind of want to mention this real quick. Next week, we're going to start a series where we're going to go through the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon. And one of the things that he deals with in the Sermon on the Mount, and so one of the things that we'll address over the next several months, is how do we understand the Old Testament commands in light of how we're supposed to live today and, and what carries over and what doesn't carry over? And I say that because I'll look to give a very brief explanation here. When, it, when Paul says Jesus set aside the law with its commands and regulations, what he's not saying is that Jesus came along and said, all this Old Testament stuff, it's stupid. We're not doing it anymore. What it's saying is that Jesus set aside the whole concept that it would be through obedience to commands that we would gain status before God. He set that aside and provided the new, true way that we could have status before God, and that's based on our connection to God's Son, Jesus. He's saying, here's where the unity lies. Here's how the wall broke down, because now you have Jews and Gentiles both coming to God the same way. You don't have Jews coming to God saying, God, we're acceptable because we obeyed all your commands, and Gentiles coming to God saying, God, we just hope you'll forgive us. You have Jews and Gentiles side by side, both coming to God and saying to God, the only leg I have to stand on is that Jesus Christ performed in my behalf and I've placed my faith in him. 
The dividing wall is taken away because there's not one salvation path for Jews and one for Gentiles. There's not one salvation path for men and another, another for women, one for black, one for white. These divisions all go away because we both are saved in the same way. Look, he goes on and he talks about what's happened through this. In the second part of verse 15, he says his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. It says Jesus did something really great. In Genesis, you can go and read this, don't take my word for it, but most of you know in Genesis, God created. He created Adam and Eve. He created mankind in his image. Now Paul says, you know what Jesus did? He created he created a new humanity. And the idea here wasn't you're no longer a Jew, you're no longer a Gentile, you're no longer a man, you're no longer a woman or, or anything like that. The point was you are not a man who happens to be a Christian. You're a Christian who happens to be a man. You're a Christian who happens to be a Jew. You're a Christian who happens to be a Gentile or a woman or a black man or a white, but any of those things, those things all fall towards the secondary because we are a new humanity. Um, Pastor H.B. Charles, who pastors a church in Jacksonville, Florida, said this, and I just love this. He was speaking on this same exact passage. And he said, you may say that blood is thicker than water. But I submit to you that blood is not thicker than water if that water is called baptism. Now, next week, next Sunday, we're going to experience some baptisms right here at this church, just right outside in our baptismal. When we experience that, the, the, what we believe is that baptism is a profound symbol. And it's the symbol of saying, I have died to myself. And when I'm raised to new life, when I come back out of the water, I am symbolizing the fact that I now belong to Jesus. And what H.B. Charles is saying is, black, white, man, woman, rich, poor, young, old, all of us go down in that water the same way and come out of that water the same way. We are in Christ. That is the most true thing about ourselves. If you've ever had the privilege of going on one of our go teams, you've probably experienced the beauty of this. Where last summer I got to be in Haiti and got to be around people that it, it's not only that they spoke a different language and looked different than me, so that their entire lives were just, it, it was hard to conceptualize what their daily life was like compared to what my daily life is like. But the fact of what Paul is saying is that I have more in common with those Haitian Christians than I do with my non-Christian neighbor that looks just like me. Because we both come to Jesus the same way. We both have our sins forgiven the same way. We're both praying to the same heavenly father. We are both indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. We both trust in the same savior. We are both going to the same eternal destiny. You have more in common with a Christian that you have never met than with a non-Christian that you have a lot of hobbies in common with. Paul says he created a new humanity. Now, I, I want to pause here and talk about this because I mentioned at the beginning, you know, in, in our culture right now, we, we are sort of looking for our, what, what, is, what is the key to unity? Uh, or sort of like, what, what's the antidote to racism and what's the antidote to sexism and the antidote to all of these different things that keep us apart? 
And there's another story about Paul that, that I want to tell real quick because it gives an insight into the gospel's answer to this and into the Christian answer to this. Now, now in the book right before Galatians, in, uh, I'm sorry, right before Ephesians is Galatians. Galatians chapter two, Paul talks about sort of an awkward moment he had with Peter, where he actually goes and confronts Peter on Peter doing something wrong. And here's the basic uh, outline of the story. So Peter, um, Peter now has come to believe as an apostle, as a Jewish man, he's come to believe that he is no longer bound by the Old Testament dietary laws where you can only eat certain things or the Old Testament cleanliness laws. And the reason is because Jesus had made all foods clean. He's made all things clean. We're cleansed in him. So we don't need to follow these rituals anymore. So because of that, Peter's hanging out with a bunch of Gentile Christians and he's not worrying about kosher laws. And he's not worrying about cleanliness laws. He's, he's just enjoying the freedom that Jesus brought. And he's living that way until some Jews show up and then Peter pulls back and starts behaving as if he would never violate kosher laws. He would never violate cleanliness laws. Um, by the way on this, th- th- this happens and, and it not only happens in our world um, with, uh, with racial issues. This happens all the time that you suddenly realize these people I'm around, they're going to drag my status down. And so I'm going to distance myself. I know this is going to be hard to believe, but in junior high, I wasn't very cool. <laughs> um, in fact, I was so not cool that I had different friends who would be nice to me and talk with me until other people were around. And then they wouldn't. And you know why they wouldn't? I was dragging down their status. Peter's like, I'm going to hang out with the Gentiles. No problem with them until they dragged down my status and he pulled away. And Paul was having none of it. Paul goes and confronts him. And here's what Paul could have said. Paul could have said, Peter, that's racist. And you're not supposed to be a racist. And he wouldn't have been totally wrong. That, That was a form of racism that Peter was practicing right there. But the message from Paul is not, that's racist, and we all know that we're not supposed to be racist. That's a rule somewhere in the Bible. Here's what he says instead in Galatians 2, verse 14. He says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Just take that in for a second. Paul doesn't say they were being racist, and it's bad to be racist. He's saying they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Because the truth of the gospel says, Peter, you're justified not because other people say you're living well enough. You are justified solely on what Jesus has done for you. So don't worry if those people are gonna judge you. Don't worry what what they're gonna say. You are acting like you still need to prove yourself. You don't need to prove yourself. If you were living in line with the gospel, you would treat people with dignity and let the chips fall where they may because you don't need to prove yourself and you certainly don't need to prove yourself by denigrating somebody else. This is, this is one, of, one of the things that I think is, is not helpful in our culture right now is when we take something like racism and, and we isolate it as if it's this sort of isolated dysfunction or isolated evil. And, and it is a dysfunction, it is an evil, but it's just one of many ways that we choose to try to justify ourselves. We, most of us live our lives instinctively thinking, how do I make myself better? And one quick way we know how to make ourselves feel better or look better is to make somebody else look or feel worse. We'll do that with race and we'll also do that with anything else. 
In fact, just to illustrate how I think we've, we've gotten a little bit off our center on this as a culture. So th- this was probably about a month ago um, that there was, you know, uh, some political turmoil because one of, one of, uh, one of the California Congress went, uh, people, Congresswoman uh, Maxine, Walters, uh, Maxine Waters, some of you know, she's a Democrat and she's been on kind of a campaign to get President Trump impeached. And so she's been very vocal against him. And President Trump decided to strike back um, with, he loves to give people nicknames, as some of you know. So he struck back by calling her low IQ Maxine, um, which, which my wife pointed out is not the most high IQ insult anybody has ever given. But, but so he called her low IQ Maxine. Um, and, and part of the interesting aftermath of this is there were different people that said that that was driven by racism. And you might say, well, well, it's not an inherently racist comment, but Maxine Waters is a, is a black woman. And so some people were saying, well, maybe that's just a convenient way. He just throws insults at black people because he really harbors racism in his heart towards black people. Now, here's the interesting thing. Here was the main defense given by President Trump's supporters. He doesn't just insult black people. <laughs> he insults everybody. It's not just black people, it's black people, white people, it's, it's Hispanic people, it's Asian people, it's men, it's women, it's Democrats, it's Republicans. He insults everyone. That was the defense. Here's what I want to say. That's not better than racism. And I want to pause because some of you might have just laughed, laughed that off, but just think about that for a second. That is not better than racism. The defense was, I'm not a racist, that would be bad. I just insult everybody. That's not better. Racism is not some isolated thing that just a few people have a dysfunction with. It's one of many ways that we make ourselves look taller by making other people look shorter. So you might look at it and say, well, I would never do that. I'm not, I'm not a racist. Well, you got to think about other things. Are there other people that you're looking down on? Are you despising people that don't have as much money as you do because you're assuming they didn't work as hard as you or they haven't made as good decisions as you have? Are you having problems because maybe you're a woman that's been mistreated in many ways and you say, oh, just men are just trash. Men, men are just bad guys. Or you're a man who's experienced some hardship and you say, oh, women are just manipulators. Or are you looking at maybe even specific people in your life and saying, well, they're just not worth the time of day that, that I would get. I'm just not going to focus that attention. Or, or here's a real twist. Are you looking at it and saying, I despise racists. You know why it feels good to despise racists? Because then you get to be like the Pharisee in the parable that says, God, thank you so much that I'm not like those racists. Paul would say to all of us, not just stop being racist. He would say, you are not living in line with the truth of the gospel. The gospel has the power to bring racial and all kinds of unity because it brings us to a point that we no longer have to prove ourselves. And when we no longer have to prove ourselves, we no longer have to stomp anyone else down. But Peter's not quite done yet. There's one last movement that we need to grasp in this. He says, all right, the the unity is based on the reach of the gospel. Nobody's outside. Nobody is unqualified for the reach of the gospel. And unity is based on the power of the gospel that he brings us together because we come to Christ in the same way. And finally, in verses 17 to 18, he's going to say, unity is based on the benefits of the gospel. He says, he came and preached peace to you who are far away 
and peace to those who are near. The same message of peace and harmony came to both Jews and Gentiles. And then he says, for through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. He says, you know what you have in common with every other Christian? You're praying to the same God and Father. You know what you have in common with every other Christian? You're indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. And you know what you have in common with every other Christian? You are saved by the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And have you ever had one of those moments where you're talking to somebody and and suddenly you have that fun experience of realizing that you have something in common? Or somebody's talking about a movie and you're like, I love that movie. You love that movie, I love that. You love that book, I love that book. You know, you you love to go there for dinner, that's my favorite restaurant, I love that. And and how exciting that is, the, the recognition of the commonality. Just think about this for a second. This is true, again, of of the Christian in Haiti, the Christian in Kenya, of everyone, of the person in this church that you feel like you have the least in common with. This is the true experience that they say, well, the God I pray to is the God and Father of, of Jesus Christ. That's the God I pray to. I'm indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That's who indwells me. I'm saved by Jesus Christ. That's who saved me too. I belong to the church. I belong to the church also. I have forgiveness of sins. I have forgiveness of sins. Just take this in for a second. We are united by the benefits of the gospel, by the fact that we all pray. This is one of the reasons why, you know, like, hey, listen to to worship music in your car and, and at different times when you're alone. That's wonderful. But part of the beauty about us gathering as a body to lift our voices to God and to pray to him is that we are all being reminded that we worship and pray to the same God. We are not just a bunch of individuals who have a connection to God. We are the people of God. And he shines his life through us more brightly when we overcome the things that would normally divide us, whether there are things that would divide us by hostility or just by lack of interest. The gospel brings unity because of how we benefit from it. Now, I talked at the beginning about Jackie Robinson and how the whole idea with Jackie Robinson was that they were going to have unity on that team if they came to the point of realizing that what they shared was more important to them than what divided them, than what they didn't share. And you know, the, the manager could have gone to them day one, could have gone to the whole Dodger team and just said, all right, here's the deal. You guys are a team. This is objective fact. You are a team, you are a unit, therefore you are unified. You all have the the same name on the front of your uniform. It says Dodgers, you are unified. And he would have been right in a sense. But then the message that he would have needed to give is, now play and act like you're unified. And for all of us, what, what we need to grasp is that unity is both a reality and a pursuit for those of us who are Christians. It is a reality. When we talk about this, the the message to us is not primarily, hey, go in and become one body. The message from from Paul is you are one body. It, It has been accomplished, it has been done. You are one with one another. You are united with one another. It has happened, Jesus did it. Now, pursue that unity. Pursue that unity, even in as as exclusive a relationship as a husband and wife. If you're you're a believer and and you have a believing spouse and you're, you're experiencing conflicts and difficulty right now, here's some good news. 
Jesus died not only to unify you with God, he died to unify you with one another. The battle has been won. Now start figuring out how you live that out. If you're looking, if you're thinking of somebody else in this church right now, maybe even somebody else in this room and saying, I don't know. I don't know, we're at odds, we've had problems, don't really like her, she doesn't really like me, like I'm not sure about all this. The message is not, no, you really do like her. The message is, you really are unified. In fact, Jesus died to buy your unity. Now, get into her world, get into his world, try to figure out how to live in light of this. Maybe there's some of, some of us in this room that, that even have resentments based on groups of people, that you have resentments based on a certain race because of something that's happened in your past or because of something that you were taught or because of some experiences that you've had that have just made you say, all men, all women, all black people, all white people, all Mexicans, all, whatever group that's in, part of what God is calling you to is healing and growth in living out the unity that Jesus purchased for us. It's a reality, but it's also something that we pursue. And we've talked about this today because it's one of the core implications of this gospel that we've been talking about for four weeks. And what we're going to get to do now, we're going to get to gather as a body and respond with worship, lifting our voices together. And and as we get ready to do that, let, let me just share with you, we're doing this not only as a response to what we've talked about this morning, But as a response to what we've been talking about for four weeks, as a response to the fact that through Jesus Christ, we are one people and through Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God. That we're lifting our voices to God, not just because we feel obligated, but because our hearts overflow when we realize that we have been one a place in the family of God through what somebody else did for us. So, so in just a moment, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to get to lift our voices together. And afterwards, I'm going to come back out because there's a couple more things that I'm going to share with you together. Now, let's go ahead and pray and prepare for this time. Father, thank you so much for the grace that you've given us in Jesus. Thank you that you've welcomed us into your family and thank you that you've welcomed us into one another's families. Father, we want to experience this oneness with you And we want to experience the reconciliation and healing that the world is longing for but doesn't know how to get. We pray that you heal our hearts. Father, I even pray before we leave today that there would be people in this room who would seek reconciliation with one another. And Father, we pray that you lead us all as we revel in the gospel of Jesus, as we revel in the almost disbelief of what has been done for us. Unify us and lead us and receive these praises now. In Jesus' name, amen.